Take your Bibles, if you would, turn with me to John chapter 5 as we're going through the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen, but if you'd like to follow in, in your translation and your version of the Bible, however, however you're looking at it, then we'll start in verse 39. John 5, starting in verse 39. Jesus is having a dialogue with the religious elite of his day. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. Search the scriptures. He's telling them. Now these guys spent their days searching the scriptures. They would, they would have the first five books of the Bible memorized. The Pentateuch. And in, in looking through those uh, scriptures, Jesus challenges them. It's like you do look at them, but are you missing it? Are you missing the point? of the written word of God, which was to introduce you into a relationship to the living word of God. And he says, all the scriptures from Genesis to Malachi, the whole beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament, Jesus was saying they all speak of a person. And he says, you're looking in it as though having a relationship with the scriptures is going to give you life, but only having a relationship with the Savior gives you life. I don't, I love the Bible. I love the American Bible Society. I love the Bible. But I don't have a relationship with pieces of paper or scrolls or rocks, whatever form it was written on. It's a signpost to point me to the one. When you're coming from Newport, if you're like an international traveler like we are, and you're trying to make your way back to Garden Grove, and it says like, you know, 11 miles. Well, the sign led you to the destination, but you don't, you don't hug the sign and have a relationship with the sign. You know? So this is a sign to point you to the one who it's about. Jesus is the destination, not Greek and Hebrew and scholarship and doctrine and all that. I'm not belittling that at all. Don't get me wrong. But these guys majored on theology and having all the original language of the Hebrew memorized. And Jesus later says, you don't even know God. And yet they knew God's word. So could it be that you could know the word of God and miss completely knowing the God of the word? It could be. It could be. So Jesus says, search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and they are there which testify me. And you will not come to me that you might have life. Again, if you could get life just from reading words on pages, you wouldn't need Jesus. You would just need academics and uh, literacy. If that's the only way you could get life. But you can't get life from rocks or scrolls or lambskin or, in our case, paper or from your iPhone. If you're, if you're reading the Bible from your iPhone. Now, they could point you to the one who's life but they themselves can't give you life. Does that make sense? Because I don't want you to think that sounds sacrilegious because I'm not belittling the Bible at all. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, but it points to a person. It has as its goal pointing us to a relationship with the Redeemer. Its goal itself is not academics. And he goes on to say, its goal is to give you life. Remember, even at the end of the book of John, the book that we're in, he says, 
Many things could have been written, but these things are written so that you would believe, and believing you would have life in his name. So the things are written so that we could come to a, a relationship with Christ and experience his life eternally and daily as he lives in us and he does life with us. He says in verse 41, I received not honor from men, but I know you that you have not the love of God in you. Uh-oh. See, the Bible says God is love in 1 John chapter 4. God is love. So location, location, location. It's probably been the major thing since I've been here the last couple of years. It's, I drive this home all the time. Where is God? Who is God? Where is God? Where is God to you? Well, if he's in you, based on who he is, then the love of God. Romans 5.5, 5, for the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost that was given unto us. Romans 5.5. 5. So if you don't have God in you, of course you don't have the love of God in you. You have different, you have maybe like a, a love for country, uh, a love for um, the Rams, even though they beat the Seahawks and then the Green Bay beat them. Um, so you might have a love for a lot of things. But if you, you can't love with God-sized, God-style, agape, unconditional love if you don't have the batteries included to pull it off. And God is the only source that could deposit his life in love so that you could catch and release. You could release what you've received. And you didn't achieve it. You received it by grace through faith. The moment you got saved, you got the God of all love living inside of you. But these guys, they had knowledge of the scripture, but they didn't have possession of the person of God. Therefore, they were lacking the resources. I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. We're going to be majoring on that today, that verse. I want to tell you right off the bat, this is referring to the Antichrist. And we'll explain that in a minute. How can you believe which receive honor one from another and seek not the honor that comes from God only? Do not think that I've accused you to the Father. There is one that accuses you, even Moses, in whom you trust. Why? Because if you ever, you ever try to ask someone, are you good enough for God's heaven? And they're like, well, yeah, I never killed anyone. I never... You're like, well, you want to take God's good person test? <laughs> and you just take them, we walk them through the Ten Commandments and, and then grade them afterwards, if they're honest. And in reality, what the law does is it points out that we're sinners that have fallen short of the glory of God in need of a Savior. The law wasn't given to save you. It was to show you that you need to be saved. For, and then he says this, If you had believed Moses, you should have believed in me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how you should believe my words. And we'll talk about that too, because Moses did allude to Jesus. And Jesus is in the law. He's in the prophets. He's in the Psalms all over the New Testament because he's the grand subject of the Bible. So let's pray and then we'll just, look at a, we'll just look at verse 39, 43, and then 47. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd guide us through this day, the Lord's day, uh, the day you rose from the dead, and every day we could celebrate your life as you do life and live life in us and with us and through us. Uh, give us... Um, Give us the ability to be edified today by your spirit and may he guide and teach us. And you, I give you full rights to be the editor uh, of the message, Lord. Delete things and subtract things and 
do whatever you need to do to communicate to us so that we could know that we have this vibrant love relationship with you. And help us to be contagious and salty and light as we leave this uh, building that we're privileged to meet in. But help us to impact our communities for Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first thing I want to look at is um, search the scriptures. Uh, can you, you can't really see that. I'm going to change that color of that font. That's kind of dark, huh? Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. So we know the living word through the written word, and the Bible, here's a quote, and I think it might be up here. The Bible is God's character in print, whereas the Lord Jesus is God's character in person. That's a good quote, not original with me. The Bible is God's character in print, whereas the Lord Jesus is God's character in person. So in essence, the Bible is God's final revelation for man to know God. The Bible is unique in that it is uh, truly the only book in the world whereby we are invited to get to know the author himself. What do they call that, an autobiography? Even though he used you know, various writers in various stages in life, they have one central theme, um, and it's the author himself. So Christ is the central theme of Scripture. That is clear. Unfortunately, even in Christianity, we can all be sidetracked and become church-centered rather than Christ-centered or Scripture-centered rather than Savior-centered. Um, on down the list, you know, we could be so sidetracked and miss the whole point. You know, it's like you could study the kingdom of God and study the kingdom, uh, the throne room, the throne, and not even focus on the king or the one who sits on the throne and get so distracted by dimensions and, and um, policies and this and that and miss it. I say that because I'm guilty of that so often, but the more I'm becoming, is it conscience? A conscience of my subconscious ability to detract, I catch myself more often. Oh, okay, that's a diversion. Oh, I'm falling for that again. Oh, okay. Because um, I've said this before, good is the enemy of the best. You could be distracted with good things and miss the best thing. Good is the enemy of the best. Does that make sense? You know, it's, there's nothing wrong with studying the kingdom and the throne and the, the size of the, the, the seat, you know, the dimensions, what it was made out of. That's all interesting. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. But what if you miss the one who sits on the throne? The best thing. See what I'm saying? That's where good becomes the enemy of the best. So, um, the Bible is not a study of anthropology, psychology, or biology, even though it contains all of that. It's a study of theology. It's a study of God himself. For example, every time um, the name Jonah is mentioned in the book of Jonah, God is mentioned three more times than Jonah, even though the title says Jonah. But God's mentioned three to one more times in that book. Here's something that I've done before, but I, I've never printed it out like this because I didn't know where it was, and I finally found it, and it was in a discipleship book that I wrote a long time ago. But I want to show you something interesting about the center verse of the Bible. And it should be up here. Um, did I miss that? It should say center verse of the Bible. It should orange on the top. There you go. So center verse of the Bible. Psalm 118 is the middle chapter of the entire Bible. Psalm 117, before Psalm 118, is the shortest chapter in the Bible. 
Psalm 119 after Psalm 118 is the longest chapter in the Bible. The Bible has 594 chapters before Psalm 118, 594 chapters after Psalm 118. If you add up all the chapters except Psalm 118, you get a total of 1,188 chapters. Interesting so far, right? So 1188 or Psalm 118 verse 8 is the middle verse of the entire Bible. Guess what the one word Guess what one word is the very center word of the very center verse of the entire Bible? Go to the next slide. Here's Psalm 118, verse 8. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Center verse, center word. Now, granted, that only works with the King James. Because, no, I'm serious. Like, because, you know, you could do word searches and other versions, and they have some have hundreds more words, hundreds less, and so this only works with this translation. Um, I'm not saying that's gospel. I just think it's interesting. It's very interesting that that would be the center word, the center verse of the center chapter uh, of the Bible. So what does that mean? It just means that God's trying to paint a picture. He's the center uh, of the scripture, and I think he's challenging us to think, well, is he the center of our very lives? So back to that Hebrews passage that you had up there, Michael. So God, who at many times in many ways spake in the time past unto the fathers by the prophets, he has in these last days spoken unto us by his son Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. So God, he could speak through a cloud, he could speak through a donkey, he could speak through um, prophets, he could speak anyway, anyhow, but he chooses to speak to us through Christ as the prime subject of the entire scripture. You know the, you know the parable of, uh, well, not the parable, the story uh, of the Mount of Transfiguration. It's in, I think, Matthew 17, but the one I'm at is in Mark 9. Um, so Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. They go up to the mountain, and Jesus shows them that he's the light. And then Moses and Elijah appear. Remember that? And they said, man, it's good for us to be here. Let's build tents. And everyone gets distra distracted with that point. Like, how dare you, Peter? That's blasphemy and idolatry. You putting Jesus on the same level of Moses and Elijah. All he's saying is, man, I dig this whole thing. Jesus is the light. You know, Moses is cool. Elijah is cool. But here's what happens. They bow because of the radiantness of Jesus. It's kind of giving you a foreshadow of when he comes back at the second coming and he destroys the Antichrist with the brightness of his, of his glory. So he's kind of showing a little bit of who he is. And they fall down and they're worshiping. And there was Moses and Elijah and they weren't worshiping them. But it was all about Jesus being the light. And so <clears throat> when they were done doing that, look, let's look at this next verse. It's, and suddenly they had looked round about and they saw no one anymore except Jesus only. You know what that tells me? Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. They're not there anymore. Jesus only. Amen. Amen. It's a Jesus only message. It's not about Moses. It's not about Elijah. It's not about the prophets. 
Moses and Elijah spoke about Jesus in their prophecies. And so Jesus is giving that example to them, like, look, you don't see the law anymore. You don't see the prophets anymore. They saw only Jesus. Luke 24, after Jesus rises from the dead, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In Luke 24, 44, and he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, and that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning So Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he's saying, I'm the grand subject of the whole Old Testament scriptures. He's the one that it's all about. Here's some other passages. Acts 3.24, Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and all those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. And then one of my favorites is Acts 10.43, To Jesus gave all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believes in him shall receive Remission of sins. I want to read to you something. It's not going to be on the screen, so if you could just bear with me. It's written by J.W. Burjan, and he says this about the Bible. The fabric, the fabric of the scriptures is perfectly designed and closely, and closely woven so that no single thread is out of place or redundant. Balaam's story in Numbers is alluded to in Deuteronomy, Joshua, Micah, Nehemiah, Peter, Jude, and John. The Exodus, with its accompanying marvels, finds mention in Joshua, Judges, Job, Psalms, Amos, Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, Jeremiah, and Daniel, and the Kings, and Samuel, Nehemiah, and repeated in the New Testament. The evangelists quote one another very often, and the epistles quote the Gospels more than 50 times. Peter quotes Paul again and again. Thus the sacred writers plainly say we stand or fall together. They reach forth their hands and hold each other fast. They recognize one another's voices, interpret one another's thoughts, and adopt one another's sayings. And among them stands, in it all, the Son of God, to seal their testimony with the authority of his own. The Master himself, as he habitually handles those earlier scriptures and everywhere confirms their truth. He accepts the prophecies of the ancient servants, of his ancient servants, beginning from Moses, and declares them all to be fulfilled in himself. He lays his finger and many incidents of the sacred history and confirms them all. From the first page of the Bible down to the days of Elijah and Elisha, down to the very last words and the very last warnings of Christ in his word, not to add or to take away from any of them. A wonderful symphony and harmony exists between the various writers. They were so numerous and so diverse and extended over such a long period of time, and yet there is through them all a striking similarity of the subject, illusion and illustration and uniformity of theme which characterizes them all in Christ. The reason for all this and the explanation of it all is that these uh, many writers drew from the same pure fountain of divine inspiration, the Lord Jesus. The Bible reveals a oneness of purpose which is discoverable in every book and which could have been imposed upon the whole varied collection of books only by a power and wisdom infinitely higher and greater than that of man. We dare not look for errors in a collective uh, or a collection of writings whose one author is the Lord himself. That's a great statement. He's dead and gone. But he knew 
the impossibility of having these writers living in different parts of the globe, having different geopolitical backgrounds, socioeconomical backgrounds, different circumstances in which they live, that, that this thread, this continuous theme about the book being about Jesus would have continued, that is only attributed to the act of div- divine inspiration. And now we have in our hands the act of divine preservation, whereas what God has inspired, he's preserved, so we could read it, not to just to know facts, but to know the Father, right? The facts are good. I'm not belittling that. But don't settle for the good when you could have the best. (laughs) So, point two. He says, I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. I think there's a slide that says the destruction of Jerusalem. So this is just an artist's rendition. But we know that Rome came in and decimated uh, Israel and the temple, and there hasn't been a temple since that time period. Oh, they want to rebuild the temple. You could do your own studies on that. But there hasn't been a temple. And if you speak to a rabbi or a Jew today, and, and you could just kindly say, well, how do you get your sins forgiven if there's no more blood sacrifices? Very nicely, by the way. You know, you, I mean, just kindly. Just, it's a logical question. As a Christian, we believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who shed his blood once and for all to forgive all of our sins, past, present, and future. They don't even have a system whereby year by year, how they used to, shedding blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So I'm just curious, how are you getting your sins forgiven if you do not believe that the Messiah was the Lamb of God? Just out of curiosity. And they say, well, we, we, and they're scattered all over. Well, we, we just believe by faith that, you know, the Day of Atonement is applied to us. And I said, oh, kind of like how David in Psalm 51, where he got caught with the sin of Bathsheba, and he says, cleanse me with hyssop. You know, take not thy Holy Spirit from me after he's, he's doing this repent uh, from his sin of Bathsheba. Because what he was saying is like, Lord, I'm not going to get an animal sacrifice. It should be my life that's because I committed adultery. The wages of sin is death. But he's, he's pleading a substitutionary sacrifice in that psalm. And he's saying, take the hyssop, which is a bushy plant, dip it in the basin, which was the priest would do. And then they put it on the altar as an atonement, a covering for sin. And so David's saying, will you apply that same thing to me without the act of doing it? So I said, okay, so that's how you get forgiveness? Okay, I get it. So it's kind of by faith in, in an act that hasn't, you haven't seen it, but you're, you're wanting it to be applied. So you're sounding so much like a Christian right about now. <laughs> Needless to say, what happened during this time, though, in the temple were all the genealogical records of the lineage of David. So anyone that would come and say, I, I have the rightful, legal, authoritative right to mount the throne, you'd have to back it up with the genealogy. So here's what Jesus is saying. I came in my father's name with the right lineage, the right genealogy. 
That's why Matthew and Luke spend about a chapter on the subject of the genealogy. One from Mary's, the other one's from Joseph. And so they cover that so that so that Jesus could legally come on the scene and be the one who he claimed to be. And he says, I have come in the rightful name, and you don't receive me. If another will come in his own name, I guess him you will receive. I think Jesus is prophetically saying, in my opinion, there's going to come someone that's going to... Jesus said, remember, there's going to come many that are saying, I'm Christ, and all this. Well, if anyone comes since... 70 AD claiming to be the Messiah, there's no way they could prove it. Jesus could prove it, but no one today could prove it. And I think it's interesting that there's going to come someone in the name of the Lord claiming to be the Messiah, but they don't have the receipts. Popular phrase these days. Look at what Romans chapter 1 says, and it says it all over um, the Gospels as proof. From Paul, a servant of Christ, and an apostle chosen, called by God to preach his good news. The good news was promised long ago through God and his prophets. It's written in the scriptures. Remember, we're just talking about all that too, but this is the key point. It's about his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, as to his humanity. He was born a descendant of the line and the lineage of David. Remember, God in the flesh. He had to come as the last Adam to redeem man. But he had to come as the prophet, the priest, and the king, and he's fulfilling it all as the rightful ruler, the rightful one to rule. And so he says, you know, but if another comes in his own name, him you're going to receive. So the other that they will receive is the one who comes in his own name without the legal and lawful genealogical um, records that trace back to David. The other, or this another that you'll receive, uh, that the entire world will receive, that calls himself God and sits in the temple of God, um, <clears throat> mounting the throne of God, is none other than the Antichrist, I believe. I think there's a chart, I'm not sure. In the next slide. Is it, what's the next slide, Michael? Okay, turn to, yeah, okay, just turn to this text, and it'll actually be on the screen also to help you out if you, if you don't um, want to turn there. But look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We went over this last uh, Sunday night, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I'm just going to go over it and make some comments along the way and hopefully help you to understand that this other that's going to come in his own name is this character right here. Now we beseech you, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together with him. Those are two different events. One is the rapture, the other is the second coming. Okay? And I know it's flip-flopped. Um, don't get confused by that. But he's writing to them because they thought they were in the tribulation period. And he's reminding them, you're not in that time period yet. So he's trying to, he's saying, here's some things that's got to happen. That you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by the spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ or the day of the Lord is at hand. Which all throughout the Old Testament always meant the second coming of Christ. And he said, you haven't missed the rapture. 
He dealt with the rapture in his first epistle in chapter 4. He said, remember, he said, um, they which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord in the air, not earth, heaven. So he already dealt with the rapture in his first epistle, and now bad circumstances are happening. Maybe it's mainstream media coming along and confusing this poor little Christian church. And they're like, oh crap, we're in the tribulation. Did I just say that from the pulpit? Um, And so he's trying to calm them down and says, look, our gathering together unto him hasn't happened yet. I don't want you to be troubled if you get bad news or bad press. Don't let anyone deceive you, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. And this word falling away, if you fall out of church, you fall out of fellowship, um, you know, you could fall from a lot of things. It just means a departure and a removal. That's what it means. If, the, if you look up the Greek word apostasia, you could fall away from truth, most definitely, for sure. But something's taking place in this epistle where he's telling him that there's this antichrist guy, the son of perdition, the man of sin. He's so stinking powerful that something greater than him has to hold him back, hold him back, hold him back. And then when he is removed and there's a removal and a departure, then he, this man of sin that's coming in his own name without the genealogical record, he's going to mount the throne, call himself God, call himself the Jesus, the Messiah, and... um, But he's saying, don't worry about that because that's not going to happen until something else. Let no one deceive you, for that day shall not come except there be a removal um, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. This is where I believe the rapture is going to take place and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Look, every Christian here would identify the Antichrist if you're here. If someone gets up and says, you know, Hey, you got to have this mark on your hand, your forehead. You can't buy, sell, or get gain. You must worship me. Uh, by the way, I'm going to sit in the temple in Jerusalem. I'm going to rebuild it. And I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. Forget about Buddha, Krishna, this guy, that guy. I'm the bee's knees when it comes to um, idolatry <laughs> and false gods. Worship me, worship me, worship me. Everyone in here would say, no way. No way. No way, Hosea. Um, that's Hebrew slang. Um, so this guy is going to be revealed after there's a removal. He says, he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship. So that he, he is God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. You're going to fall for that? I don't think so. I'm not going to fall. You're not going to fall for that. There will be people left behind that will and some will not. And those that endure to the end of the seven-year tribulation period will be saved in their physical life. So, remember you not that when I was with you, I told you these things. Read the first epistle. That's First Thessalonians. He's saying, remember, I told you these things, and you guys got, I no sooner left, and then you went back to believing these crazy things again. Let's go to the next one. And now you know what withholds that he might be revealed in his time. Okay, so here's the same idea. He's withholding this this great universal power that's going to be confined in a central person that's going to claim that he comes in his own name, that he is the Messiah, he is God, and he's the one that it's all about. 
And so this universal worship, much like Babylon, remember, the, the, they built the, the image and when they played the, the music, what's a sack butt? But they played a sack butt, um, a psaltery, <laughs> and they played all the different kinds of music. And when they played the music, they were to fall down and worship the image. Same sort of thing, this universal one world religious system. And he is going to call all the shots. But something's withholding that from, from happening. So if this great universal religious figure that's so powerful that's going to cause everyone, both small or great, to worship him, what do you think's greater than the Antichrist? Or who do you think's greater? Not me. I can't start a YouTube channel and like oppose the, the Antichrist. I get censored in day one. Right? You can't, you can't tweet out, He's the Antichrist. You can't fight this. So there's something much greater than the Antichrist, and I believe it's the Holy Spirit that's found within the people of his church. And so the Holy Spirit is in you, and we're withholding. There's kind of, you know this pedophile thing that's going to break loose, and all these people supposedly are going to get found out for their, their worldwide pedophilia? You know, I, hear me out. So you remove Christians that kind of give people a conscience a little bit, at least, you know, and then you're removed. Do you think that's going to be lawlessness? Or do you think everyone's just going to get along and there's not going to be any problems whatsoever? We're kind of this blockade, the firewall, so to speak. And once that firewall's removed and the Holy Spirit, look, the Holy Spirit's omniscient and omnipresent. So though he can't totally be removed because he's everywhere at once, his ministry changes, just like his ministry was different in the old covenant. I'll go back to David's prayer. Take not thy Holy Spirit for me. Well, that's not a prayer of a Christian. That's a prayer of an Old Testament saint. You know, the Holy Spirit would come on people and leave him. Samson is a great example. Powerful Samson, but not when the Holy Spirit left him. But the Holy Spirit never leaves you and he never forsakes you. You're sealed by him. So you're sealed and you're redeemed and you're taken out. And then the man of sin, the mystery of iniquity, is, is just only he, will, only he who now lets will let until he be taken out of the way. That's the Holy Spirit. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So go to the next slide. So here's where we're at. Here's the cross, 2,000 years ago, church age, period of grace. People could get saved by grace through faith. And when they do, they could get filled with the Holy Spirit and sealed, name written in the book of life. Okay, that's all right now. Sin's forgiven. We're walking with Jesus the Bible, Jesus says there's like two different events when Jesus uh, talks about it. Matthew 24, uh, Luke 17, Luke 21. It's like the days of Noah, the days of um, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. People are buying and selling, giving in marriage. It's wicked, right? The days of Noah were wicked and the days of Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked and the days of Lot were wicked. But people were buying and selling and giving in marriage business as usual. Boom, comes as a thief in the night. Rapture the church. We, the dead in Christ will rise, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them uh, in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Revelation 19, the bride, the church, comes back with Christ, 
and he destroys this guy and his system. Incidentally, this guy signs a peace treaty right here with the world for seven years. This is in the Bible. And study this stuff out. Don't just say, like, oh, Neil said this. Read your own Bible, you know? I'm not just making this stuff up. The Bible, Revelation gives the stinking dates. It says 42 months, 42 months. What's 42 months? Three and a half, right? What's 42 plus 42? There you go. So he says, in 42, 42 months, yeah, seven years, he's right. So in the middle, the Antichrist, it's called the abomination of desolation. In the three and a half years, he breaks the covenant, his peace treaty. It says through peace he deceives many. So he comes, as he's going to be a good trickster. He's going to fool people. He's going to be, you know, set up the temple and everything's great and just, just you know, use my currency, uh, worship my image, and everything will be fine for you. If you don't, no soup for you. <laughs> um, wouldn't that be funny if the Antichrist did that? <laughs> you don't have the mark of the beast, no soup for you. That'd be a funny Antichrist. So, here, let's go to the next slide. So he's going to set up the temple. You can read about this in Revelation, I think it's 12 or 13. 666, the number of man, the number of the beast, you know. Um, and he's going to have this, this homogenized, one-world worship. But it's all centered on this guy where Jesus said, I come in my own name with the proper prophecies, the proper pedigree and credentials, and you who study the Bible don't receive him. Another will come in his own name with improper credentials, but he has all, all lying signs and wonders. That's another thing. He has all sign lines and wonders. And people are going to be astonished at the ability of the Antichrist. They are going to be impressed. He's going to have wonders. you imagine if the Antichrist is able to walk on water? You're like, I read about that somewhere. And he's saying, well, I could do it too. Remember Moses and the, the, other, the other dudes he was squaring off with, with Pharaoh? They had signs and wonders also. So the Antichrist is going to deceive, deceive, deceive. And then lastly, and we won't spend a lot of time on this, he says, if you believe Moses, you would believe Jesus, because he wrote, he wrote of me. If you would have believed Moses, you would have believed in me, for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how should you uh, believe my words? So, as we wrap up this third point, John 1.45, we were there uh, last year at some point. Philip finds Nathanael and said unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Found him. Moses was writing about him. And Jesus is saying, you, you guys read Moses all the time. You believe all the writings of the Old Testament Moses. And he wrote of me, but if you... If you don't believe it really, that's what he's saying, then how could you believe his words? Acts 3.22. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up 
uh, unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall you hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And they use this, Stephen used this um, in Acts 7 as a part of his apologia. Um, this is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord God raise up unto your brethren like unto me. Him you shall hear. And this is a quote from Deuteronomy in Moses' own words. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The whole chapter is really good if you read Deuteronomy 18. But this is the quote that the, that the New Testament writers were referring to. The Lord, thy, the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, from Israel, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him you shall hearken. And so Jesus is trying to say, who do you think that is? He's got all the right credentials. He's got the genealogy. He's got the signs and wonders. He's got all the prophecies, the place of birth, the time of birth, uh, all of it. And in fact, look at the similarities. I don't know if I have this. Yeah, there it is. Um, as babies, they were both saved miraculously under the age of two. They both did miracles. Both Moses and Yeshua, or Jesus, are born in the time of national bondage, a time of trouble. They both were saviors, so to speak, and I don't mean that in a, in a blasphemous way about Moses, but like a physical saving, you know, where he pulled the people out of bondage from Egypt. Um, and they appeared after Israel uh, waited for a generation for its redemption. Both were concealed and hidden under the age of two before I meant to write, ultimately, being re revealed to Israel. Both were rejected as saviors. Both authored covenants, Moses the old, Jesus the new. Both were Messiah types, meaning anointed uh, ones chosen for the task. Both were prophets. Um, besides the obvious, both were Hebrews and Israelites. Both chosen to lead the people. Both chose 12 to follow and lead. Remember, Moses did uh, 12, one from each tribe of Israel. Um, both chose a life of hardship, and both are judges. And you can make a bigger list than this. This is not even exhaustive and not probably extremely 100% accurate. You know, I think I mentioned a couple things that were kind of parallel, similar. So, but you get the idea. Moses said there's going to come someone, he's prophesying that he's going to be like me. Listen to him. And then Jesus shows up and he's talking to the ones that read and believe Moses every day. And he said, I'm the one. But he already knows the hearts of people. There's going to come someone else. And him, Jews, Gentiles, all are going to believe. And he doesn't even have the right credentials. But he's going to fool everyone. But if you'll come on Sunday nights, you'll realize <laughs> the good news to that story. It's interesting, both in First and Second Thessalonians, we didn't look at these verses, but in the midst of a church that thought they were in the tribulation and, oh no, uh, you know, the donkey maneuvers hit the fan, everything's <laughs> breaking loose. He often says this word, but comfort you one another with these words. Comfort you one another with these words. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. In conclusion, Christian, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm assuming you do. But we were reading about people that knew a lot about the Bible. They knew a lot about the written word of God, but they don't know the living word of God. Maybe. I mean, I went to seminary and Bible college. 
oftentimes people would get saved that are studying the Bible. You know, that's, and that's okay. There's no, there's no shame in that at all. No shame in that. I mean, it's better just to... And look, I'm not one to embarrass anyone anyways. If that's you, I got saved when I went home from church because I didn't want any... Because I knew a lot of the Bible and I did missions work um, and I knew I wasn't saved. I got saved coming home from church because I didn't want anyone to know. I was too embarrassed. <laughs> and so, and that's okay too, right? Um, so do you know the Lord? I guess another question is, do you make him known? If you do know him, do you make him known? That's kind of my thing for 2021 is I'm praying for opportunities. Um, the, Jesus is the center of the scriptures, just not in a condemning way. Just check yourself. Is he the center of your life? Or do you find yourself falling for the good at the expense of the best? Right? That's probably most of us. The Lord Jesus came the first time. It's certain that he's coming again. So let's pray that the Lord will open doors for us to share the good news. Hey, you know, people are calling this the great reset, but they're also calling it the great opportunity for a great awakening. I'm more focused on the great awakening part than the great reset part, right? So let's pray that God would, I guess, co-labor with us, and he wants to. He's just looking for willing people to, to co-opt with him to be instruments to share good news to people that are super confused, including a lot of us. One thing we're not confused about is what must I do to be saved? This we do know. We'll believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Right? Let's stand and be dismissed in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name uh, amongst your people uh, with your book. And we thank you that that signpost pointed us to a relationship with you. Lord, help us to be people that not only love you, but love the church and also to love our neighbors to the point that we would want to give out freely what we also received. And so, Lord, help us to be about our Father's business. And Lord, help us also to be on our spiritual toes, uh, looking and waiting for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.